Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know we say like a lot. It's kind of the point, because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Officially one week out, out meaning post from election day. <laughs> and we have been watching all these results come in. We talked about it in our intro last week about how we're just the two smartest girlies in the political space, I think, just period. Brilliant. Brilliant no genius. One, like no one's even close, honestly. You can you can hear it in our prediction basically results episode pre-election and post-election is confirming that we were right. So again, we will not stop talking about that. But speaking of results and election results and how crazy it's been, we had Brian Derrick on our top stories episode yesterday to run us through all all of the results, which like I couldn't think of a, more, a better person to do that. Facts. Literally the perfect guest for the occasion. We love Brian always, but Brian really has been on top of all things election because he is basically like an elections guru, in my opinion. I haven't used guru 100%. in forever as a word, but bringing it back, having a moment. Truly a Brian politics Derek, guru, political guru. Yeah. Because we talked about it with him, how like he's been on three, that was his third time on the show. And like first one was build back better. So he's policy guru. Second one was redistricting. So electoral guru again. But yes, absolutely slayed going through all of these results and not only the ones that we are just seeing on our news apps and TVs and such, aka the Senate, the House, some of these governor's races that are kind of more in the mainstream of things, but talking about these state houses and how impactful those results are. So super important stuff to go over and yeah, also talking about just the impact and what it's going to look like moving forward. So go listen if you haven't yet. If you haven't, like run, don't walk, you know, run, sprint. This is like if you've been like, I want to get into running, you're thinking, you know what, this might I you know, maybe you were inspired by the New York Marathon. You're like, you know what, this is the time for me to get into it. Absolutely. Do it. Sprint to this episode. Run to it. Or look, some people listen to podcasts on on runs. Put it on. Put it on. I also just want to make one note of during this recording, we literally got the Arizona results for the governor's race. So you get to see our little live reaction. Live reaction. 100%. And we are... That was a special moment. Pleased. Ecstatic. Which is such a hard word to say, by the way. That and he's really Brian's story. He was like last night. He was like, I'll, I went back to my phone and 
He's like, I was recording a podcast. I went back to my phone. I got all these hate DMs that I hadn't like done a dance video yet to these governor's <laughs> results in Arizona. And it was like literally our fault. Stop. Um, Sorry, Brian. We love but you. I literally offered him. I was like, can you please make the dancing story right now on this recording? Because that would have been such a special, special moment for this show and for my life, honestly. Yeah, really. That's, but, I think that's a that's a personal plug. That's a life highlight, 100%. Well, in other news, in a, like outside of election, we are we are back. Congress is back. We're and, back, baby. Yes. And the House and the Senate started the lame duck session on Monday. So what's happening in Congress is government funding is the most important unfinished priority as appropriators face a December 16th deadline. The defense authorization. The Defense Authorization Bill. Oh, my God. Hello. Ukraine aid, same-sex marriage, electoral college reform, and maybe even a debt limit boost will be debated over the closing weeks of the 117th Congress. Yet what's really at stake is the future of the Republican Party, both on and off Capitol Hill, which is going to be the most interesting thing to watch. Just not only them deciding who is going to be Speaker of the House, given that they are likely to take the House in a small small majority, which we talk about on Brian's episode and what that all means. And if you're like, oh, fuck, they took the House, like there's some some silver linings in oh, yeah. these results. And we talk about it with Brian. So definitely go listen. And then Donald Trump is expected to announce Tuesday. Okay, when we're recording this, but future you guys listeners are probably sitting on this news already, that he's running for the White House again, which is setting off this debate inside the GOP of whether they're going to stick with the MAGA vibes or if they're going to finally graduate. There's members of Congress invited to Mar-a-Lago for this announcement, so it seems like it will happen given that there is literally an event planned and in place. But it's just crazy because the whole story around this was that Trump was waiting for these results and waiting to see how his candidates did to then decide if he's going to announce, which it literally couldn't have gone worse for Donald Trump in these election results. So again, we we also said it, let it be known, let the records show that we literally said, given his ego, we expect him, regardless of what happens, to still announce and still go for it. So again, it'll be interesting, but I'm more interested to see like what the rest of the GOP does. These like statements that they're making where they're like, we need to change leadership. We need to change things. We need to regroup. And that awareness is something that I don't always expect from them, you know? Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with that. I also think, though, it's funny. Like, yes, leadership matters. But at the end of the day, like, personally, I think Mitch McConnell hates Trump as much as he sucks his dick. And most of them and it's, do, which is I know, but it's one so of those things like the past few years. I feel like and granted, not in, you know, the Republican clubhouse. There could be some missing links that I'm I'm not aware of or whatever. But it seems like Mitch McConnell, I can't believe I'm defending Mitch McConnell right now, like reacted to what the group wanted. Like, okay, you guys are all gonna jump on Magatrain. I see that for me to get something done, I have to unite with that and then lead with that in mind. Yeah. Like and if all anything, the they're all the problem. So mm-hmm. they're just going to eat each other alive, which have have a great time. Mm-hmm. Don't forget seasoning. You know, like, I, well, speaking of things that we will have to see what happens, all eyes are on Georgia because we have a runoff on December 6th. 
Unfortunately, you cannot register to vote beforehand because of a voter suppression law that was passed last year. So if you're listening to this and you know someone in Georgia that wants to register to vote to run, vote in the runoff, unfortunately, that's not possible. However, it does mean that we need to get every single voter out there that showed up this time around or didn't show up but is registered to vote in the state of Georgia out mm-hmm. to vote. So 100%. this is your reminder to text everyone you know in Georgia and have them text all of their friends because friends don't let friends miss elections, including runoff elections. So Aww. that's the T. And I also speaking of, no, we can still say that. I know, but it's like we're, we have some time before we like have to like scream from the rooftops again. Okay, fine. We're bringing it down to like a, a lower octave. But yeah. speaking of that phrase, our collection of social goods is still available. So if you guys are thinking of holiday gifts ready, Mm-hmm. little stocking stuffers or gifts for your friends. Maybe you guys are doing like a little holiday party gift exchange. Type thing. Yes, yes, yes. Our collection of social goods is perfect for it. We've got a trucker hat. We've got stickers. We've got a pop socket. We've got a tote. You can get the tote, put some of the items in it. There you go. You've got 100%. a whole, whole gift ready to roll. Yep. So Go get it at socialgoods.com. And speaking of a little housekeeping moment as well, and speaking of like not stopping encouraging Mm. your friends to vote, but also encouraging your friends to keep the political and civic engagement going post-election, that is such an important message here. And we talk about a little bit with Brian, too, about how moving forward, the like key piece of what these results mean and like its future impact is that we have to keep going and that this should really just be a start. And so join our brand ambassador program because we are continuing the civic engagement there. It's a community of young women who want to keep the conversation going and share resources, share action items, share funny memes, whatever it is. And then there's also political networking opportunities. If you want to work in the space, or maybe you're just curious, learning more, you can join and get in on those conversations, which have been super helpful for a lot of people. So that's been really awesome. But join our Brand Ambassador program. You can go to girlinthegup.com and go to the Brand Ambassador page, learn a little bit about it, apply. And then you'll meet us on a quick phone call, introduce yourself, and then we'll get you into the program. But there's no requirements, no time requirements. It's fully volunteer-based. So no worries on if you know, you're know you super busy. It's whatever you have time for. We just want to bring you in to the community and also ask your friends if they want to join you in that in that effort to just Join our little Slack group, contribute to the conversation here and there. And again, just growing this girl in the gov community, this this gov club, you know? To Maddie's point about staying engaged, one of the big factors that has come out so far post-election is that young women have literally changed the course of these elections. And we need to continue doing that. So stay engaged, stay with us, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Girl in the Gov, Girl in the Gov, the podcast, as well as on TikTok, Pinterest. I do need to upload some stuff there. Sorry, guys. It's happening. LinkedIn. And of course, like Maddie said, join the brand ambassador program. Share it with friends. Now, this week's episode, this week's interview. We really have done so many like back-to-back interview episodes by total accident because we keep hijacking our top stories. Regardless, I've been... This was one of these conversations that was so fucking fun where I did not want to get off the the Zoom. No, and you learn so much. And it's so interesting, so fascinating, and such important information to know. Um, 
Literally. In this particular episode, we talk about critical race theory. So you may have heard that also as like CRT. It has been the talk of the town on the Republican side, trying to be like, ban CRT. And then a lot of questions around, well, what is CRT? Like, And they don't know what it is. Like, there are so many questions. So anyways, we brought on the most amazing human to run us through it because she is an expert in CRT in critical race theory. And that is Dr. Kiara Bridges. She's a professor at UC Berkeley, law professor. You also might know Dr. Bridges from her viral clip, literally handing Josh Hawley's ass to himself on a platter. If not, we need to link it. It will be linked. Yeah. Let's get into it. And without further ado, here's Dr. Bridges. Well, we are locked and loaded and ready to roll and to talk about your career, talk about CRT, so many different avenues that we need to go down. But let's back it up to your current career, which is the fact that you're a law professor at Berkeley. And thing one is how is being back at school? Like how how is the semester so far? (laughs) I know, I know. So if I'm honest... Should I be honest? No, no, yes. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> you know, I, I love, I love teaching. I love talking about the law. I, you know, I love dressing up for class. I love picking mm-hmm. out my clothes. Like I love the whole thing, but there is something sweet about not having to be in a classroom, you know, for two to three hours at a time. It is some, there's something very sweet about being able to conduct my own research and kind of structure my day in the way that I, w- I want to. So The semester always feels like, as much as I love it, it always feels like I can't wait until it's over so that I can do the other things that I love to do. (laughs) Yeah. A thousand percent. We we also, we need outfit deeds. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, being for the past, you know, because of the pandemic, we were online. We were on Zoom for a year and a half. And I was so excited to come back to in-person teaching because I love clothes and shoes and accessories. So I love playing dress up and yeah, yeah. I I love, I love a very nice heel. Mm -hmm. I love large earrings. I love, you know, patterns and color. So yeah, it's definitely something that makes me excited about getting up in the morning. It sounds like we all need to go on a shopping trip together. (laughs) I would love that. Yes. (laughs) We're also, we are both very short and big heel wearers, especially me. So (laughs) sign us up. Like we're going to, we're going to do a trip. Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm down. You know, (laughs) whenever there's an excuse for me to go shopping, I I take it. (laughs) Yes, 100%. (laughs) Well, getting into, you know, your studies and really how you even got here to, you know, dressing up for class every day. (laughs) Can you give us kind of your journey into this role and into, you know, studying a specific topic and into teaching? Yeah, thanks for asking. I've always wanted to go to law school when I was very young, when I was seven years old, I believe the the legend goes, you know, people would ask me, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I would say, I want to be a lawyer. And I don't know why I, I wanted to be a lawyer. I often explain it in terms of like, I'm a contrarian. I'm like a little black sheep of my family. And I come from a family in which there are a lot of medical doctors and there are zero lawyers. And so being a lawyer seemed like, you know, something that no one else had done in my family. And it seemed also interesting. So I yeah. kind of just stayed on that path throughout middle school and high school and college and I applied to law school at the you know end of college and ended up going to Columbia. And then I kind of had to f- figure out just exactly what it means to be a lawyer. 
And the reality is that you can do a lot of things with your JD. You can litigate, you can do sort of corporate work, you can, you know, like deals, you can do nonprofit work, you can do appellate work. So, mm-hmm. and you kind of just don't know that. Like, you know, yeah. being being the first lawyer in my family, I had no idea, you know, the many different careers that you could pursue yeah. with the JD. So it wasn't until I got to law school that I was like, what exactly, what kind of lawyer do I want to be? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the most exciting thing about the law for me was researching it and writing about it. So like actually being a law professor was seemed like the most, it seemed like what I wanted to do with my JD. And so then I had to figure out how I was going to become a law professor and one yeah. becomes a law professor, a couple of different paths, but I decided to do the PhD route. And so after law school, I applied for a PhD in anthropology. And then I did a postdoc after I got my PhD. And then I got my first law teaching job. But the way that I came to pregnancy and reproductive rights and justice specifically, I mentioned already that I come from a family full of doctors. Well, my Uncle Jay, it's kind of like the patriarch of my family. And he was the first board certified obstetrician. I'm sorry, first black board certified obstetrician in Miami, Florida. So like he was like, you know, delivered thousands of babies Mm -hmm. over the course of his career. So I was very interested in like pregnancy and working with pregnant folks, but I didn't want to work with them in the way that he. So so I came to be able to work with pregnant folks by thinking about pregnancy and thinking about the ways that society regulates it the way the society celebrates it for some, you know, thinks of it as a social problem for others. So I've been very interested in just investigating, yeah, just the the myriad ways that that people's bodies are are problematized or held up as ideals in the context of pregnancy and parenting and mothering and fathering. And so that's been kind of my career. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. Really impressive. That's amazing. And I totally feel you on the non-doctor route because <laughs> I faint at just about every doctor's appointment. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and I'm also a hypochondriac, you know, like I, I don't particularly like being around sick That's people. actually, I've never thought about that. Like when you're going through med school, like yeah. you're basically just sitting and looking at WebMD all day. Just like, you're like, do I have cancer? Do what I is have this that? on my hand? Exactly. I'm pretty sure I would have diagnosed myself with everything that I study. Yeah, in I'm surprised school, that's but. not a thing. Doctors <laughs> do, like deal with more is yeah. their hypochondriacs. Yeah. Wait, that's um, actually such a good question. One of my best know. friends is, is a resident right now and I will be asking her yeah. immediately after, like, do you like self-diagnose? <laughs> like, how does this happen? Like, what's the vibe? So nonetheless, another conversation to have, but within like what you just said, you mentioned mm-hmm. doing research and compiling some of that research and kind of figuring out the next pathways for that. Right. And you've written a number of publications, books, on your research. Can you tell us about like the process for compiling research, for writing a book? Like how does that go down? Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I have my PhD in anthropology and the methodology of anthropology is ethnography and field work. So for my my first book is an ethnography. It's a, I conducted 18 months of field work in a public hospital an obstetrics clinic in that hospital. And I was working with low-income pregnant folks trying to navigate bureaucracies, navigate 
you know, the problematization of their bodies, of their fertility, all while trying to hang on to their dignity and their humanity and their, you know, self-determination. So the process for writing a book like my first book, Reproducing Race, which is an ethnography, is much different than writing my second book, which was called is called Poverty of Privacy Rights. And that's a very sort of legal analysis of the things that I sort of analyze ethnographically in my first book. So like for my first book, it's just a whole bunch of, of you know, the, the methodology of ethnography is really just sitting and observing and watching and participating when you have an opportunity and interviewing and just kind of like, I, I think of it as like embedding myself in my field. So when I was mm-hmm. working at the hospital, I just, first of all, I waited around a lot, just looking and observing and seeing people's come, you know, their comings and going. And then after a while, because it was a public hospital where they're very short staffed and I was there, I was able to eventually kind of help out. So I was doing pregnancy tests. I was checking people in for their appointments. I was giving them oh, information wow. about, you know, as also I speak Spanish. And so I was like a Spanish translator. So I was able to not just observe, but actually participate. And so after eight, 18 months and also lots of interviews, right? So I interviewed yeah. the patients, I interviewed the staff, I interviewed the, the residents, the attendings, I you know interviewed everybody over the course of this 18 months. And then after you compile all of this, just field notes and interviews and you transcribe them. And then eventually you kind of have to identify themes that emerge. Like one theme that emerged when I was was doing my research was like how much distrust there was of the patients, right? This is a hospital that's kind of built to help vulnerable people. And at the same time, there was so much distrust of the patients that that were being helped. And so you know, I, I analyze that in terms of like these larger, you know, discourses that circulate about how low income people shouldn't be pregnant in the first place, how they're a drain on society, how their kids are like our future social problems. And I sort of analyzed the, the very particular things that I observed in light of these sort of larger forces. So, you know, I, I, I picked out themes. I came up with six of them, I believe. Those became my six chapters. And then, you know, I was, you know, off to writing and researching. I like to research as I write. And so it's kind of like an iterative process, you know, like yeah. I, I come up with an idea, I research the idea, I write a little bit about it, I find out I need more research, I go, you know, consult back with my notes. And there's this kind of like iterative process where at the end of it, I got a book. And then, you know, my second book, Poverty of Privacy Rights, is very different. Like I didn't have the benefit of field work for that. It was an entirely different type of book. It's a very legal book. It's a it's an analysis of the meaning, you know, uh, the meaningfulness of saying that we have rights and mm. specifically privacy rights, like the right to determine whether we have a child or not have a child, the right to parent our children in the way that we see fit. And the, and the argument in that book is that, you know, low-income people don't have that right. They, they've been disenfranchised of that right because of their poverty, because we don't trust poor people. And that book was very different. You know, I divided it in terms of sort of areas of privacy. So family privacy, reproductive privacy, informational privacy, spatial privacy. And the the process was the same in the sense of this iterative sort of thing where I think I have an idea, 
but then like I have to research a little bit more and then I write it and then I have to research and then yeah in the 18 months there the book there <laughs> 18 months oh my gosh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just thinking of like the longest essay I've ever written and I'm just like that I used to hate doing that <laughs> you yeah, know imagine my, doing a book but it seems problem, like such an interesting process like, my wow. problem is that I actually write too much like mm-hmm. I promised my editor a hundred thousand words and then when I turned in the final manuscript it was like 150,000 and she's like nah we're not gonna do this <laughs> no I never had that problem I was always like like double like a little bit over a double space just to like see if I can get a few more pages like a, out of a it larger font, you know? <laughs> yeah. I get like it. do professors yeah. have an eye for that like maybe you could die. oh I yeah didn't. like I, I love when students are can be like short and sweet <laughs> I love that there's a, yeah. there's definitely a power in being economical with your work. Well, yeah, I would. I was always taught, you know, to be really concise with how you right. write and like mm-hmm. really get to the point. And then, but then they're like, but make it 20 pages. Right. I'm like, well. <laughs> there's a contradiction there. I feel like yeah, I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to talk about to one of your other books, which is Critical Race Theory, a primer. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about this book and kind of the process there too? Is it similar? Or how mm-hmm. did that work? Well, actually, so that book was different because I was planning. So, you know, we get sabbaticals every couple of years as academics. And during this particular sabbatical, I think it was like 2017 or 2018, I can't remember. I was planning on working on the book that I'm currently working on now, which is another ethnography. But before the sabbatical, I got approached by who the guy who had become my editor. And he said, I think there need there like the there's a there's a need for a book that explains critical race theory. Now, mind you, this was in 2017, which is like before most people <laughs> are talking heard. about. It. Yeah, yeah, right. So, and it's so funny that I wrote that book and it was published in 2018. It was like either at the very end of 2018 or 2019 before the hullabaloo happened of a critical race theory. And so I kind of feel like my editor is a little, you know, psychic, but anyway. But yeah, he was just like, I think we need, there's a book, there's a need for a book that sort of describes this theory, kind of, you know, gives its basic kind of principles, applies it to a different, you know, different areas of life and, you know, make it short, make it readable. And he's like, I think you can do it because I'm a critical race theorist. So it's like, that sounds like something I would like to spend my sabbatical doing. So I came up with, you know, like, so critical race theory is is an advanced legal theory. And so the first, you know, I was like, we need an introduction. So, you know, let me briefly describe the, the, the theory and the introduction. And then I was like, and I need to give a history of this thing because, you know, where did it come from? Why did people think that it was like necessary? Gave a history of it. I talked about controversies within the theory. And then I you know, had have chapters on major concepts within critical race theory, like intersectionality, like the concept of white privilege, like the relationship between race and class, because oftentimes those things are reduced into one another. And then I wanted to end the book by applying it to yeah, different areas of life, like health and affirmative action. And yeah, so I I sort of charted out what I thought the book could do and could cover also what did I have expertise to talk about because critical race theory can be applied to a range of areas and so for example we can do a critical race theoretical analysis of the immigration law 
I'm not an immigration lawyer. Like yeah. I'm not good at it. I don't know much about it. So I kind of could not talk about that, but I've been doing reproductive justice, you know, for my entire adult life. So mm -hmm. I have a chapter in the book on the welfare state and reproduction. So that's how the book came to be. Like I said, it was published at the end of this, you know, 2018 or 2019. And then this whole, you know, culture war over critical race theory started in 2020. So again, my, my, my editor was a little psychic. <laughs> like, <Yes>. Literally, <laughs> I can't get over that. I kind of want to like, like do a little meeting, see what else you yeah. get. Can I get a reading? <laughs> <laughs> little Ouija board situation. Yeah, yeah I get know. the tarot yeah. cards out. Yeah. Like I'm ready. Yeah. I love it. Oh, yeah. Too good. Well, speaking of critical race theory, getting into it, we definitely want to give a primer for our audience and starting with some of the basic questions, which is what is critical race theory? <laughs> okay. So critical race theory, the... It's an advanced legal theory. It emerged in law schools in, I would say, the 80s and then in the 90s. And the question that prompted its emergence was the civil rights movement had happened, right? The Civil Rights Act of 1964 had been passed. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 had been passed. We had made all of these gains in terms of racial justice. But folks, law professors started looking around in the 1980s and 1990s and they sort of saw kind of dramatic racial inequality. And mm -hmm. they're like, how could it be that, you know, we overcame in the 1960s, we had all of these civil rights laws passed, but there still is racial inequality, you know, decades later. And so they were interested in investigating how it was that law had been unsuccessful, you know, mm -hmm. in, in producing the outcomes that we had fought for. And so critical race theory really is an investigation into the limits of the law. You know, like how, how has law been used to, you know, improve matters when it comes to race, but how has law also been used to kind of justify inequality to reiterate inequality, to make invisible the mechanisms by yeah. which inequality is, is produced. And so that's what critical race theory is. It's really a critique of progressive understandings of race. It's the progressive understandings of race, specifically, I, I call it, you know, liberal civil rights discourse kind of conceptualizes racism as what happens when bad actors do bad things. Like mm. when, when people think racist thoughts and do bad things, well, that's what racism is. And that's kind of like what our civil rights laws is designed, they're, what they're designed to solve, right? It's yeah. like, let's find these racists, let's find these bad actors right. and let's, you know, run them out of public life. But what if that's not the mechanism by which racial inequality is reproduced in the post-civil rights era? Mm -hmm. Like, what if racial inequality is not, you know, a, like a guy behind the curtain who's like, I shall, you know, make sure that people of color are poorer than everybody else. Right. What if racial inequality is produced by race-neutral laws that just have the effect of reproducing historic racial inequality? What if it's more structural and institutional mechanisms that produce mm -hmm. racial inequality as opposed to individual bad actors? 
if our laws are interested in finding individual bad actors, then we're going to be unsuccessful in, in producing racially just outcomes. And so critical race theory really is a critique of the way the traditional civil rights discourse has conceptualized race and racism and the problem of racial inequality. Totally. That's such a good explainer, too. <laughs> I think, like, just you're right, like, some of the laws that were passed in the 1960s, right, were almost like a disguise, ended up being just like a disguise for the racist things that happen just systemically, like across the board that we don't think about that, again, that white privilege that most people are raised not to even think about or not know about. And I think it's obviously such an important thing for people to know, to study, et cetera. We'll get into that a little bit, but we want to kind of keep going on this, on this line of questions too, to Mm -hmm. kind of get a better understanding. So What is a colorblind law or policy and how does that fit in here? Yeah, so colorblind laws. (laughs) So a couple of different directions I could take that question. Colorblind laws are are laws that don't have race on their face. So it's, so for example, the laws that were problematic in the era of racial, of formal racial inequality that produced segregated schools said that, okay, these were white schools and black kids couldn't go to those white schools or these were white schools and Mexican kids couldn't go to those schools. So that was a facially race-based law. And a colorblind law would be one that doesn't have race on its face. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gets into some of the the problems of colorblindness, right? So of course, when you use race on the face of a law in order to deny a historically marginalized group access to benefits or goods or services or just basic necessities, right? Then it seems like the answer is colorblindness, right? Like if you're keeping kids out of well-funded schools with great, you know, physical plants on the basis of race, then it seems like the answer is, okay, stop, you know, regulating and treating people differently on the basis of race. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is that in the post-civil rights era, our schools are just about as segregated as they were before Brown versus Ford. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly not because there are schools out there that's like, nope, only white kids in here. Right. You got to go to the Mexican school down the street. Rather, our schools are segregated because of race neutral processes, processes that don't have race on their face. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we think it is a social good to have integrated schools, if we think it is good for I, my therapist called it, the, you know, people to have these interpersonal collisions, right? Mm-hmm. If we think it's actually good for the country to have uh, heterogeneous classrooms and communities and churches and 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 corporations and and institutions, then we can't like throw our hands up and say no more, you know, putting race in the in the law. We might need race conscious efforts to bring a bring about a racially integrated society. We might need race conscious efforts to produce racially integrated schools. Mm -hmm. And so colorblindness is often deployed by the right in a post-civil rights era, the era that we're living in, is often used by the right to protect the racial inequality, Mm -hmm. the racial segregation that we see across institutions. 
like seaweed did something, you know, and but it just bleeds into everything else. And it's like, like legal segregation, basically, it becomes right, right, right. like that. It's kind of like what you were saying, the civil rights laws, you know, the fact that we have the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that was passed and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, it's kind of been used as an excuse to do nothing else. Mm-hmm. It's kind of exactly. like, we did it. Let's pat ourselves on the back. Let's, you know, high fives yeah. <laughs> and go home when instead that was an awesome first step. <laughs> you know, right. it, it got, very necessary some, one. got some things done. But now looking at the way society is working, the way institutions are operating, the way you look outside and, and what it looks like, you know, what else do we need to do in order to, I say, live, you know, fulfill the, the vision, the values that we purport to hold dear as a nation. It's right, right there in the Constitution. It says something about liberty and justice and <laughs> equality. Like, what, what do we need in order to achieve that? And it's right. clearly not just formal racial and mm. um, equality. Totally. Well, for another key question here, what is the difference between institutional racism and structural? This is definitely a question we get a lot. I'm curious, yeah. uh, sort of your POV on it. Yeah. So it's, it's so I actually have a chapter on institutional <laughs> black structural racism <laughs> in my program. It really depends on the theorist that you're asking. Some theorists think of institutional and structural racism as kind of synonyms, like they mean the same thing, while others believe that they are distinct. For those who believe, so what both of those things are referring to are not individualist racism. So, you know, individual individualist racism being like a bigot, right? A mm-hmm. racist, a white supremacist, you know, something like that. And in what institutional slash structural racism is referring to, it's not bigotry, but rather these other processes that produce racial inequality. Now, when people think of those concepts as, as distinct institutional racism as being distinct from structural racism, they think of institutional racism as referring to intra institutional processes that exclude. So think of one institution, for example, law school. Law schools have these processes. You know, we have standardized tests. We, in order to get into law school, we have, we privilege grades. We privilege all the sort of like indicia of merit. Like, you know, did you volunteer? You know, did you travel? How many languages do you speak? Those sorts of things. And those sorts of things tend to be a good indicator of class privilege (laughs) and wealth. So when we rely on LSATs and grades and did you travel and, you know, did you volunteer as opposed to asking questions like, were you raising your little brother while you were trying to go to high school or did you have to work throughout as opposed to relying on your parents paying your tuition? Right. When we rely on those traditional indices of merit, we do a great job of excluding historically marginalized groups. So we can call that institutional racism because in, an institution, the institution of law school is, is in, in embracing criteria that exclude. Right. That might be versus structural racism, some theorists say, because structural racism sort of looks across institutions, looks across various areas of society and looks at how institutional processes intersect in order to disadvantage non-white groups. And so 
that same analysis would say, okay, law schools might be an institution that might be excluding, but we can't understand the way that law school excludes without looking at the way that our public schools are funded, right? We fund public schools through property tax and property taxes, you know, that, that mechanism of funding public schools, that's a great job of making sure that the kids in the suburbs have very well-funded schools because the property tax base is high while ensuring that the kids in the hood have underfunded schools because the, the tax base is low. And so we, and then when you look, of, look at that in concert with a lack of infrastructure, Right. So folks in the hood can't get to the jobs and in, at the at the corporate parks and the in mm-hmm. the in the suburbs. And then you look at that in concert with. And so you just look at different right. sort of institutions across society and the way that they interact to produce disadvantage would be understood as structural racism. So those are sort of two. Mm-hmm. Again, they might be synonyms, but when they are distinct institutions, but institutional racism would look at one institution kind of in isolation from others, while structural racism would look at them in in operating, sort of interacting with one another. Yeah, that makes yeah. a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, lovely. Next mm-hmm. one on the list is what is implicit bias? Another mm-hmm. kind of one I feel like we hear a lot. I know people <laughs> love to talk about implicit bias, maybe less so today in light of the black backlash, but implicit bias is just the idea that we have associations and aversions that we are not necessarily conscious of, but that nevertheless influence our behavior, like we act on them. And so the idea might be that if I were to ask a random person, hey, do you associate black men with criminality? <laughs> They'd be like, of course not. Like, I'm not a bigot. But when they do the implicit association test, which is this test that sort of tests your the associations that you make subconsciously, they sort of ask you to link happy and unhappy words with black and white or, you know, whatever group they're testing against, you know, it's under intense time constraints. So you can't sort of think and pause. You just got to go real fast. Implicit biases are those things that people don't think that they, they don't think that they have, they might not even want to have. Mm-hmm. But when you do the implicit association test, it reveals that, you know, there is an association between Black males and criminality or, you know, Latinx people and undocumented, you know, status or, you know, LGBTQ people and weakness or, you know, so in, in, and again, it's not just that people have them, but rather they act on them. And so mm-hmm. there, are, there are tons of experiments done by psychologists that show that you give someone an implicit association test to see, you know, what their, bi- you know, their implicit biases are. And then like you ask them to do a task. And again, most of the time it's under intense time constraints and they'll act on, they'll act on the implicit biases that they have. You know, I do a lot of work in, you know, reproductive justice and so healthcare and medicine. And there are these studies that, you know, have given physicians in person association tests to see mm-hmm. whether they have, you know, anti-Black or pro-white implicit biases. And those physicians that do tend to discount Black people's pain. They tend not to recommend Black people for the most effective treatments. So again, it has it has like very real consequences. And so that's kind of the, the it's not just an interesting fact about oneself, but yeah. rather it has very real consequences in the real world. 
Totally. I have a question. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is really like a tangent, but do you think it would be helpful if like hospitals or other institutions did these tests like as part of like a hiring process? And maybe right. this exists and I totally am just out to lunch on it. Yeah. But like they did like that sort of test and then therefore like they could design some sort of training based off of like those results. Yeah. Like yeah. would that help decree? I mean, like obviously it's yeah. not a one like not what's the phrase I'm trying to think of? Not one shoe fits all. Right. One size yeah. fits all. Oh right. my God. One shoe. <laughs> one shoe? That's good what? though. It's also <laughs> true. One shoe does not fit all. True. <laughs> we true. did. Very true. Facts. This is true. Uh, I think, you know, some institutions, some institutions have maybe required or encouraged implicit bias trainings, I would say, or at least that, you know, folks do the implicit association test because the idea is that you need. We need to know if you right. have implicit biases because then it behooves you to kind of like do something about them. And so I have a critique of implicit bias, which I'll yeah. get to in a second. But I will say that some institutions have, you know, there are some medical schools, there are some residency programs that require the students to take an implicit association test and then like be mindful of the implicit biases that they have as they go out there in the world. I know that some institutions have done like cultural competency training so that people know how to interact with and engage with difference, you know, however that difference, the the form that difference might take. So I I think those are laudable, right? Like I, I don't, I don't, think that institutions should not be doing that. I will also say the interest that some institutions have been taking in terms of addressing or or just making their employees aware of the fact of implicit bias and the fact of, you know, cultural or racial difference, that has been like the source of the backlash that we saw in 19, in, you know, in, in 2020 after George Floyd was killed. Like a lot of institutions became interested in like, why are they so mad? Like, why are they protesting in, in Minneapolis and across the country? And so, you know, we had a racial reckoning and, and a lot of corporations, institutions, workplaces wanted to sort of bring information about racial inequality to their employees and people got offended. And then it became a huge culture war. My critique of implicit bias is as follows. I think that we're worried about the wrong thing. (laughs) I think that if we want people not to have implicit biases and not to act on implicit biases, we need to ask why people have implicit biases in the first place. And people Mm -hmm. have implicit biases in the first place because we have organized our society in such way that Mm. people come to associate Black males with criminality. People come to associate Latinx people with an undocumented status. People, like those associations make sense to people because our world has made it make sense. So if we want to get rid of the association between Black males and criminality, I think that the easy way out and not an effective way out is to give somebody an implicit association test and say, hey, you think of criminals when you think of Black men, stop doing that. Mm-hmm. And instead, like, how about we address the criminalization right. of Black communities? How about we think of non-carceral solutions for our social problems? So I'm interested in doing, like, the hard work or, when it comes to... It's like a to, Band-Aid, actually, when exactly. you think about it. Exactly. I was it. just saying that. And yeah. it, another thing that allows us to pat ourselves on the back 
and mm-hmm. then like continue with the status quo. It allows us to say, we gave our employees an implicit association test and we, you know, brought in this this guy and he talked about cultural competency yeah. and go back to do what you were doing before as opposed to doing like the hard work of yeah. organizing society differently so that, yeah. you know, that people think different thoughts. That's um, such a good point. Have And so that's how we would have more just outcomes. Totally. Okay, I mean, I think treating at the source, like yeah. waiting, waiting to the problem gets uglier and uglier and having to try and fix it from there. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's like the, that's an, that's an issue with the way we approach. Like, I feel like almost every issue too, right. Is like, we're always trying to find these band-aids or short-term solutions, which like, yeah. obviously I think we still need, but the yeah. real effort should be going towards these kind of more foundational issues that we can hopefully solve there to prevent you know more of this happening in the future so i feel like we just see that across the board but it's such a good way to think about it. i've never never thought that way so that was very interesting last question on our on our list promise and then we'll get into some other stuff is what is intersectionality yeah intersectionality it's a concept so the 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 phrase intersectionality Fun fact, it was coined by a law professor, Professor Kim Crenshaw. She's amazing. She's also the person who came up with the term critical race theory. So, yeah, she is very good at coming up with, you know, phrases that capture, you know, Mm -hmm. concepts or bodies of knowledge. And so when I hear people talking about critical race theory in ways that the right has proposed that's true critical race theory. It irritates me because yeah. Kim Crenshaw literally came up with this phrase to to identify a distinct body of knowledge. Oh, that's say intersectionality is refers to a concept that actually predates Kim Crenshaw naming it as such, but it's just the idea that people experience their identities differently depending on other identities that they have. And so in like the foundational piece that Kim Crenshaw wrote on this, she compared Black women with white women and Black women with Black men. Mm. And she's like, we tend to think of racism as it affects Black men. Uh, The subject subject of anti-racism tends to be male. And so when we think of racism, we think of like police brutality and we think of prisons and jails and we think of, you know, denial of voting rights. You know, we don't think of obstetric violence, for example, like we don't think of doctors performing C-sections on Black women unnecessarily, like they're not Mm -hmm. medically indicated. Nobody consented to it, but they're going to do it anyway because it's expedient. We don't think of the child welfare system, like taking kids away from their mothers, not because their mothers don't love them or are abusive to them, rather because their mothers are poor, right? Mm -hmm. So the subject of anti-racism tends to be a Black male. And so it it, it makes invisible the way that racism impacts Black women and, you know, other, you know, Black non-binary people. And the same thing when it comes to sexism, Mm -hmm. Kim Crenshaw's intervention was to say the subject of of feminism is a white woman. Mm -hmm. And so when we think of sexism, we think of the way that sexism has showed up in the lives of white women. So Mm -hmm. we think of like being denied the ability to, to be, you know, 
to access contraception and to be sterilized to get a tubal ligation because a, a racist, sexist society wanted white women to reproduce. We don't think of the ways that sexism looks when it fests in the lives of Black women. Um, mm-hmm. Again, the denial of custody of their kids forced sterilizations, right? Like while white women were being compelled to reproduce, Black women and Latinx women, Indigenous women were being denied the ability to reproduce because society didn't want them to. So intersectionality is really a concept that asks us to take seriously the ways that oppression as well as privilege might manifest differently depending on other categories of identity that people have. And so it's also, it could be, I mean, one of the critiques critiques of intersectionality is, is like, okay, so just how many intersections do we have here? <laughs> like, right. I just talked about race and, you know, sex. What about sexuality, right? Mm-hmm. What about gender identity? What about class? What about whether one is native born or foreign born? What about ability, right? Mm-hmm. Surely a black, you know, cis woman who is able-bodied, able-minded, racism might look differently to her than a black cis woman who has a disability, mental, yeah. physical disability, right? So one of the critiques of intersectionality is just like, well, how then, you know, <laughs> which yeah. intersections are important. But I think the, the you know, and people have written books about that as a limitation of intersectionality. What, that um, it can be kind of all like overwhelming or something? It can be overwhelming. To, yeah. And yeah. it can also be impossible to create coalitions, like political coalitions. Oh, yeah. Like, you mm-hmm. know, like if, if it's kind of like what we we're seeing today when it comes to abortion, right? Like, this fight over whether we need to use the word women or not, you know, like, should we say mm-hmm. pregnant women or should we say pregnant people, people capable of pregnancy? The thing, yeah. the, the fear is that we won't be able to create this coalition if we don't name this thing as something that affects women, right? right? And if Black women are over here talking about that is not my battle or that's your battle, white women, that's 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 the battle that you've always fought and it, it becomes, you know, more difficult to have like a political like separates movement. a little bit more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think that it's a danger perhaps of intersectionality, but I don't think that it is a limit. Mm. Uh, it's not a, it's not a reason to discard the the sort of framework, the concept. Totally. I, think, I think it underscores, it brings to light some important things that we ought to consider. Totally. It's so important for people to like understand, but then from there, like how do you kind of implement it into right. Right. solutions and such? But absolutely. Okay, well, we made it through our I Have a Stupid Question segment. So thank you for answering all of those. We appreciate it. We kind of want to talk about the political world and how critical race theory has now stepped into that space weirdly or politics has, you know, forced itself into that space. I'm not sure which way it went. But can you kind of explain why critical race theory has become so political? Was there kind of a catalyst that brought it into the into political rhetoric? Like, how did it start kind of getting yeah. political like this? I think there's an obvious origin story to it. And that is the, you know, racial reckoning we, that people said that we were having in the summer following George Floyd's murder. So, you know, there was a lot of protests, but even more so than the protests, there was a shift in the way that people initially began to think about like 
the reality of police violence. And I tell, I've told this story before, but I have to tell it again. So, you know, we're like in the, in like the throes of the pandemic, you know, in the summer of 2020. And, you know, there were protests everywhere and I really needed to order (laughs) some soap (laughs) to my house because I was out of soap and I went on amazon.com and the like first thing that I see when the page opens is this banner that says black lives matter Mm -hmm. and then it gave me some reading recommendations some books that I could buy if I wanted to learn more about you know why and how black lives matter And I was just so struck by that because it was only a couple of years before that, you know, saying Black Lives Matter, like was identifying yourself as like left of left of left of left, right? Like just like radical, like you can't say Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter in in public spaces and not expect to be identified as like radical. But there I was, Jeff Bezos, you know, was letting me know that Black Lives Matter. (laughs) Amazon of all places. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was a shift in the way that we had come. I, I, I sort of think of it in terms of like, that summer, people were like, well, maybe these critiques that I've been hearing and that have been circulating about institutional racism and structural racism and like maybe there's something to that. Let's think more about it. And like I said, I think institutions began trying to bring some of that into their into their institutions, exposing their employees to it. And then, you know, there's only so much you can do before somebody tries to capitalize on it. And mm-hmm. I identify Christopher Rufo. He's a conservative activist. And he went on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News in September 2020. And he was complaining that federal agencies were teaching federal employees critical race theory. That's what he called it. And he in, his, his entreaty was for the Trump administration to do something about it because it was, and also it was a caricature. I wouldn't even say a caricature. It was like a falsity of what critical race theory is. It wasn't anything that you and I, you know, that we just talked about just now, but rather it was this idea that, you know, critical race theory proposes that all black people are victims of racism and all white people are racist and there and there's an inherent racism to white people as well as America. And yeah, it's not in anything of what actual critical race theory proposes. But this is what he called it. He went on Tucker Carlson. Somebody from the Trump administration was paying attention because, you know, days later or weeks later, they issued an executive order banning the teaching of critical race theory and to federal employees with federal monies. Trump lost the election in November, but there was like, I feel like there was a salient, like it was, I somebody believed that there was something to this particular culture war. And that's when it spread to K-12 schools. Because back in September 2020, no one was talking about K-12 schools. Right. It wasn't until after the election that conservative activists started saying, well, critical race theory is being taught not in federal agencies, but like the kindergartners, you know, to sixth graders. Sixth graders are learning that they should feel guilt. Six, white sixth graders should be learning that they feel guilty because they're white. Then we saw the sort of rash of legislation that purported to ban critical race theory in K through 12 schools. So they created something uh, that they they took a name, they co-opted a name from an advanced legal theory, took that name and then applied it to something that we don't actually know what it is. 
Like when the right says we need to get critical race theory out of, you know, K through 12 schools, what no are idea. they talking about? Yeah. Like, it's like a, it's like a floating signifier. Like, yeah. tell me what it is. And then they're like, oh, beloved, beloved is critical race theory. Like Toni Morrison, my God, totally. And from Kendi, like whatever he's writing, that's critical race theory. And they sort of like, there's no coherence to it. You just know critical race theory when you see it. And so it's really dangerous, right? Yeah. To ban something that there's a vagueness to it and it can be capacious, it could be narrow, but there's just no there there. It just allows them to remove thought from schools that they think it doesn't celebrate America's racial history, this triumphant mm-hmm. victory over racism that that the right would like to believe us, you know, to tell us that we've had. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. So taking one, yeah, so many thoughts, but them taking one big brush stroke and yeah. trying to sort of create their own bullshit. <laughs> I was gonna say, look, at least they're on brand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> at least they're consistent. Yeah. I got it, you know, I so, you know, this co-opting of the term critical race theory, we saw it, you know, I spent a lot of my summer of 2021 just trying to fight the forces of disinformation and misinformation. And then like, here we are in 2022. And now like this language of grooming is being used to talk about anything that tells LGBTQ kids that you're worthy of being alive, <laughs> mm. uh, that you're that you're worthy of love, that there's nothing wrong with you. That sort of tells people that LGBTQ folks have value, are human, deserve dignity. Like that's grooming now. Mm. Uh, so yeah, they're like wildly on brand, right? Like right. co-opting of terms, you know, and deploying them for really, con- you know, it's conservative slash nefar- nefarious ends. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that like, really the attack on critical race theory kind of stemmed from even maybe like the way the corporate world kind of took on this like Black Lives Matter and social Mm -hmm. impacts all these stances like after 2020 would you think it was like this perceived threat that ultimately like let's go after this and shut it down immediately like yeah you know I I wonder I wonder whether I mean I definitely remember being like wary of the sort of corporate take up of yeah I, I want to know your thoughts on all yeah, of that yeah the, ling- the language of like anti-racism right like all of like all of a sudden you know Jeff Bezos cares about black not Jeff Bezos but Amazon Amazon yeah. now cares about you know black lives and and it wasn't just Amazon like I, I my retirement is with betterment <laughs> <laughs> and I got an email from betterment they had had yeah they had it with right <laughs> Everyone was on board. I was, I was definitely like, okay, but do you like, so what else? Like, what else are you Mm -hmm. doing besides sending out these really kind of beautiful to the people who, you know, whose retirement account you hold? (laughs) Like, you know, like, what else are you doing? But I, I do think that the attention that just mainstream America was giving to racism and anti-racism just made the force, the regressive forces uncomfortable. And I also think that talking about race 
is uncomfortable. Like I can do it all day because I, I mean, kind of like my field of study. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, it's usually like, pe- people don't walk into a cocktail party and say, hey, have you encountered racial inequality today? Yeah. Like, you know, it's not something that you're supposed to talk about in polite society. So like when you go to work and you have to go to this training where, again, some guy is up there, you know, talking about institutional racism and structural racism and implicit bias. And, you know, it was uncomfortable for people. And I think Mm -hmm. that when the right weaponized talking about race in public in the way that it did, it resonated with a lot of people. I think um, a lot of people were like, yes, we ought to have a racial yeah, so like, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. Please come save us. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think that there is some truth to, you know, what the, I think they thought that there was some truth to what the protesters were saying. Like, it's wild, right. That we've been talking about police violence in this country since yeah. chattel slavery. Right. And we're still talking about it today. And the people who tend to be killed in the most spectacular of fashions tend to be Black people, right? So there's that. But then at the same time, I'm trying to go to work and I'm trying to, you know, file my report. And I have to go to this training where I'm being told stuff about race that just makes me uncomfortable. Mm. So I think the right capitalized on the discomfort that people felt. Yeah, That's actually a really good point. I think it's like ironic too. Maybe ironic is like not the right term, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's something where it's like not wanting to lose privilege or admitting that in mm-hmm. some capacity is like showing someone's like ugly side, like whether it's like mm-hmm. in a conversation or with oneself. Yeah. And then this is where like the irony comes in. But now the larger reaction is like trying to reject like CRT or just like larger like syst- like systemic change. Like yeah. that shows even worse the side of these people. Like instead of just confronting right. like what needs to change within oneself mm-hmm. and society, yeah. your like your larger reaction is just like right. Let's like let's sure. literally burn books. <laughs> like Crazy. not a metaphorical Crazy. book burning, but like a literal book burning, right? Like it's an mm-hmm. incredible like when when what when the proper reaction or the best reaction requires humility. And not only do you not approach it with humility, but rather with fire <laughs> right it's just like yeah. there's something something went wrong there <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and it like stemmed from a not even like a perceived threat right mm-hmm. like it wasn't even something that was you know trying to be implemented or into k through 12 or whatever it is but it's just this entire political yeah. rhetoric and threat that was created yeah like yeah. For, for what when so I was in high school, and I'm not that old, <laughs> but when you I don't was look at high- thank you, it's moisturizing. Um, yes, we love a skincare routine. <laughs> I read Beloved when I was in high school in, in AP English if, mm-hmm. well, with my favorite English professor. She was amazing. And I don't remember it being like, like your parents have to sign a consent form, permission form. Which would be crazy. It was just like, this is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. This was her, in my view, her best work. So rich. Mm -hmm. In terms of story. Like literature. Yeah. Yeah. And so to, in 2022, to say that's critical race theory and kids can't learn that anymore. It's like, so what really happened, right? Like what, mm-hmm. what really happened? It's, it's such a loss to, and, and, I, and I tell people 
this is not my area of expertise, right? Like I am, I am a legal scholar. I think about the law, but when I think about like, just as a lay person, I think it's such a loss to, to, for children, like for kids, like for 16 year olds. I think I was 16 or 15 when I read Beloved and it Mm -hmm. resonated with me. It's a beautiful book. And I think it's a loss that children won't be exposed to that. Like that it's like now literature that you can't even access in your school's library. You kind of have to like find it on the internet. Yeah. It's just so insane because everything that we're taught growing up is already so whitewashed. And then it's like, you're continuing to cut out black stories when it's really just like an amazing piece of literature, like just on its face. But because it's, you know, a black story, it's considered critical race theory. That just makes absolutely no sense to me. Yeah. I'm with you. (laughs) Well, we could probably talk about this for hours and hours and hours. And we are unfortunately a little bit out of time here, but this has been amazing. And you've answered our questions amazingly and just been a great explainer for everyone. So we're super excited about this, but is there anything that we can plug for you books, social media, tell us where people can find you. Yeah, that's awesome. I, you know, I don't do the social media only because I'm I'm scared of Twitter. I'll see. (laughs) I'm like jealous of you. (laughs) I'm also one of those people. Like I read the comments, like, you know, like, you know, you're not supposed to read the comments, but there Mm -hmm. I am like, Oh my God, people are terrible. And that's yeah. all that I would do if I was in social media. So oh, yeah. I would just say what my what I will say is that when you are, and this is to your audience, when you're getting information about what critical race theory is, and this this is might be a little self-serving, but it's not, look to before 2020. <laughs> because in tw- book. we'll be linking it <laughs> <laughs> so my again my book came out before the hullabaloo so I kind of feel like that's what actual critical race yeah. theory is the right will now tell you that critical race theory is something else but it has been politicized so if you want to know what critical race theory was before the you know right co-opted the term look to pre-2020 things and it's not just my book but when I was in law school we used critical race theory the essential writings that formed the movement. It's so there are there are other books out there on critical race theory. They, you know, predate 2020. And I would look to those sources and not the the post 2020 ones that are clearly politicized. Not Amazon's right. list. <laughs> you know what? My Amazon list comes up pretty good, but then again they it's the algorithm. The algorithm knows oh, me at this point. Fair, so, fair. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Well thank you so much for coming Thank-you. on. This was awesome. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for having these conversations. They're really important. (laughs) Yes, totally. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.